Well, good morning again. We're so glad that you're with us this morning here in person or with us online. What a joy and privilege it is to be able to sing together, read God's word together, take communion together, and then come and hear the word proclaimed together. This morning we have the awesome and wonderful privilege of hearing from someone else, somebody who has grown up, literally grown up in Trinity. Uh, This morning, Ryan North is going to be preaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 12. Ryan and his family have been a part of Trinity for a very long time. I'll say that for the sake of his parents, um, rather than actual dates and figures. Um, And many of you know him and know him from when he was real little, and now here he is gearing up and getting ready to move into ministry. And so it is a great privilege to have him. He's been interning with us and Sean Allen, our student ministry this summer. He's done that a number of times. And uh, what a joy and privilege to be able to hear from one of our own, grown up from within, and getting ready to launch out and to bring the gospel to bear on lives of people. And so what a privilege and what a treat this is for us. So welcome, Ryan. Ryan, come on up and proclaim the word. Well, good morning to you all. I, I can also say that it is a privilege for me to be here, to be able to proclaim God's word to you. I know I'm thankful for this opportunity as um, spending so much time here growing up through children's church and youth group and uh, now graduating and being able to have the opportunity to intern. So I'm very thankful for that. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 as we continue our series, Living Well, in a hard world. Today's sermon is titled, It's a Wonderful Life, continuing on with the themes of movie titles. This passage today is concluding the preacher's comments on the realities of life before the book concludes as it began with the narrator's comments. And as we walk through these verses, we're going to consider the realities of life and how we can enjoy it in the face of realities that we cannot control if we turn to God. We can enjoy life in the face of realities we cannot control if we turn to God. Life, according to this hard world of frustrations, will always lead us to regretful despair. Yet no matter our stage of life, we can live it joyfully and with purpose when we do so according to God's good plan. So if you would read with me Ecclesiastes 11 through 12, verse 8. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree lies, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you know not which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. The doors on the street are shut and when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the privilege to gather together here today as your people, to come before you in worship and song and through your word. God, as we come to your word this morning to consider how we can live this life with joy and purpose, I pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would be with the preaching of your word. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the main character, George Bailey, is struggling with the realities of his life. He's contemplating ending it all. When he gets to the brink, an angel named Clarence is sent to him to help him, to help him not lose hope. Throughout the movie, we see moments from George's life where he does good things that save people. He saved someone from accidentally getting poisoned, and he saved his brother, Harry, from drowning in the Winter River. And when George is getting older, he has these dreams to go overseas and learn and study and get an education. But he decides instead to remain in order to save his father's company from being dissolved. So the money, which would have been used for his education, is instead used for his brothers. We see time and time again George putting aside his longings and his desires for the betterment of his brother. And when World War II breaks out, Harry goes off to fight leaving George on his own with the business. There's a mix-up, and a lot of money is lost in the process. And when George is trying to get it back, he finds that there was a warrant for his arrest. At this point, George becomes incredibly angry and bitter about the circumstance. He gets drunk and crashes his car before finding himself at the bridge where the angel meets him. And the angel meets him and tells him if he helps him, he will get his wings. So Clarence the angel in the place of George, jumps in the water, forcing George to save his life instead of take his own. When they return, Clarence lets George see what life would have been like had he never been born, something he had expressed he had wished. Nobody recognized him. Nothing he had ever done had happened. Nothing about his life had mattered. Helping his brother and marrying his wife were never there. He does not like this and flees back to the bridge and terrified, begging for his life back. He's given it and George sent back to his life 
filled with a new level of purpose and joy. Sometimes in our lives, we might feel like we can relate to George. Sometimes everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Even if everything we do is for others and we seek to do good in all we do, sometimes life is out of control. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're getting what we think we ought to out of life, what we think we deserve. Maybe it feels like we want something and God won't give it to us. The job we thought we should get somehow falls through or we don't enjoy it anymore. The school we applied to rejects us or we are struggling, struggling in school. Our relationship we thought was forever suddenly ends or our marriage is in turmoil often. Whatever the case, whenever it feels as if we do everything right and life still slips through our fingers with its difficulties and trials, we may very well relate to George. We may be left wondering, God, why won't you give us what we think we deserve? Perhaps not a perfect illustration, but when George returns to the bridge and begs for his life back, he gets it and he returns with this new sense of purpose and joy in life. In a similar way, sometimes we try to go before God to bend his will to our desires, to what we think we need in life, what we want, what would make our life have purpose. Instead, this leads to disappointment when those things don't happen. Rather, we ought to live our lives with open hands, knowing that what tomorrow brings is not something we can know for sure. We ought to instead be praying that God's will for our lives align with his will for our lives, that our hearts desire what God wants. And when we start to do this, we start to trust that even when things go awry, when things go not to plan, disappointments or hardships come, that we can trust that God, our creator, is in control and our lives are in his hands. Today, as we consider what the preacher has for us, we can see how difficult and confusing situations are present in many of our lives but we can still enjoy this life in the face of the realities we cannot control. Life is still good if we turn to God. Despite life's challenges and its difficulties, they're still good when we seek to live as God designed. The passage can be seen in three main parts as the preacher brings to light how we ought to live our lives in a world where we don't know the future. We don't know what God is going to do. No matter how much we may try to know the future, ultimately it is out of our reach. So we are taught to live our lives with open hands. Stewarding what we are given in this life well, because we do not know what will happen tomorrow or what will happen around us. The preacher also draws out the importance of enjoying life as God intended. For even in difficult circumstances, life itself is still good. Therefore, we should rejoice in it. And thirdly, the preacher draws on creation language in Genesis 1 as he calls on us to remember your creator, to let that reality shape our lives, our view of life, and how we deal with its confusing times and its mysteries. The preacher begins the chapter, chapter 11, with a perplexing thought as he calls upon us to cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, in verse 1. The understanding of this passage, there's three main interpretations which could be reasonably argued for. The first is that it refers to charity in the sense of giving financially or with food or otherwise to the poor. And the reasoning for this is how it's seen as connecting to verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Another sees a releasing of bread on the water 
as a metaphor for a senseless act. The bread dissolves, but such an act may have consequences which we may have not seen or ignored because of our lack of view of the future. The third perspective sees it as referring to wise investment. The idea of the metaphor being that we ought to steward wisely what God has given us in this life, whether financially or otherwise. And while all of them are convincing in some way, I think the third perspective is the one that I'll be holding. As the context of it focuses on the riches and the wealth, following chapter 10 where these concepts, concepts are discussed, and before verses 2 to 6 where we learn more about the uncertainty of life. We ought to be living our lives well and stewarding what God has given us graciously in this life. The preacher offers his reasoning for this in the following verses as he reminds us the mysterious nature of our futures. That we cannot know what is going to happen. And as such, we should not hold too tightly to it and squander what God has given us as a gift. The first way we learn how to enjoy life when things are out of control is that we should live our lives with open hands. We should live our lives with open hands. The mysterious nature of the future is something we all agree with in concept. But how often do we live our lives as if something that is not true? As if we know what tomorrow holds? We all have plans for tomorrow, for the weeks ahead, the months, and the years. We assume tomorrow is coming, that we will wake up and go to work or to school. Maybe we look forward to and plan for times with friends and family. And we plan on getting married and having kids, maybe even grandkids, graduating and retiring. All these things are good. And we should look forward to them and be excited and happy about them. But we should never do so without remembering that the future is a mystery. We do not know what tomorrow holds. The idea here is that life is given as a gift from God. We cannot forget that as we seek to wisely steward what we are given in this life as a lot. There are also things in life which we do not know and only God knows. As verse 5 says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Many of our instincts tell us that we want to know everything about life, have all the answers, all the pieces of pertinent information to our lives. But part of the Christian walk is being able to relinquish that, becoming content with the reality of not knowing. Sometimes we cannot know and it feels like it's destroying us. But Ecclesiastes is teaching us that it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to hand our futures over to God. For when we try to know the things we cannot know or pretend to know them, it's more foolishness than it is wisdom. We also know that there's no promise of success and no sure way to avoid failure. It says, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In a lot of ways, the culture defines us by our success. We're defined by how well we do in school, by what school we go to. We're defined by the prestige of our job, how much money we make, how important we are there. We're defined by our impact to society and our follower count on social media and how many friends we have in life. And the problem with this is we do not know how to promise success. There's no sure way in this life of succeeding according to the standards of the world. But what we do know about life is that in order to steward our lives wisely, we must be willing to live them with open hands. Ultimately, our money is a gift from God which we steward on this earth. Ultimately, our time is a gift from God which we steward here. The theme specifically of wealth is one which has appeared several times through the preacher's journey so far. And in these verses, 
He's showing us that how when we hold too tightly to those things, to our gifts that we have been given, they become idols in our lives. It's when these things come above God and replace him that they become a problem. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is addressing this very clearly where he exhorts us to not store up our treasure on earth where it is vulnerable to moth and to rust, but instead to store it up in heaven where they are forever. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God and God alone must be the center of our lives. As Christians, we're not defined by what the world says we are. We're defined by our identity in Christ. And as we cling to Christ, we desire to make God the center of our lives. The second way that we learn how to enjoy life in the midst of circumstances we cannot control is by enjoying life as God intended. In verse 7, the proverb makes a definitive change in the, uh, the preacher's perspective so far. And through large sections of Ecclesiastes, this under-the-sun phrase has had a decidedly negative connotation to it, with consequences. But like the unexpected arrival of spring, we find this verse. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Light is sweet. The metaphor is evoking the idea of tasting and the full experiencing of life as truly good. It reminds of Psalm 34, 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The preacher is declaring that being alive is a good thing, even a delightful thing. This is in contrast to his seemingly difficult journey so far. He's clearly offering us an affirmation of joy over despair, the goodness of life as opposed to his more negative view of life. After all we've been through, the preacher we ask the question, how does he get to a conclusion that life is good? In verse 8, he starts to offer us an answer. It says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them. Rejoice. The first part of the preacher's solution for our lives is to rejoice. We're encouraged to rejoice in all our days, however many we are granted. Joy is possible in life, no matter our age, if we rejoice in our years. Sometimes it might feel like joy is not possible in our lives, that the weight of our burdens is too heavy for it to exist, that the cloud that is consuming us just will not leave. The preacher also affirms this reality, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. In the process of trying to affirm joy over despair, the preacher is struggling how to relate the two. He's having a hard time understanding how this life is still good when so much bad happens. But once again, in verse 9, his command is to rejoice. This time, it seems as if he's talking specifically to youth. Though not only restricted to youth, as that would contradict what he says in verse 8 about rejoicing in all our years. In some ways, the preacher's not just suggesting that we rejoice, not just suggesting we enjoy life. He's commanding us to enjoy life. But at the same time, affirming that proper enjoyment of life is as God intended. For we will be brought into judgment for how we use this life, for all that we do. Verse 10 upholds this understanding as he exhorts us to banish vexation from our heart and to put away evil from our bodies. For the youth in the beginnings of our lives is a mystery. The preacher is commanding us to banish vexation from our heart and to put away evil from the body. He connects the two together because he knows that the following of our hearts, like he commanded us to, will lead to using our body for evil. 
Therefore, we must also put away evil from our lives when we banish vexation from our hearts. As we live, we should embrace joy and pursue life as God has intended. Again, we see the preacher's perspective continue to change. The evil and the anger no longer are avoided in the light of the mystery of life. This idea of the mysteries of life is something that is somewhat central to the book of Ecclesiastes. But here, more than ever, it's viewed in a positive light. That we are limited by our creaturely knowledge, and that's okay. That we cannot know everything, and we can be okay with that. We can find joy in this life, even in our limited knowledge of life and the mysteries of the future, if we seek to do so and enjoy life as God intended. The third way we are able to enjoy life as God intended, or as in the face of realities we cannot control, is to remember your creator. Remember your creator. The idea the preacher wants us to understand here is that the remembering of God as our creator is what shapes our view of life and how we deal with the mysteries that come. In some ways, remembering God as our creator is the way, is the antidote to the many days of darkness which he has just mentioned. Once again, he's setting the context of remembrance in the years of our youth, which in a literal sense is talking about how there is a difference between youth and old age. The longer we live, the more times we experience the mysteries, the joys, and the sadness of life. But we should also not forget, back to verse 8, that he commanded us to rejoice in all our years. And that informs us that this exhortation is to remember your creator is meant for every one of us. What he's saying is the foundation of our lives need to be built upon the foundation of remembering God as creator. When we remember God as our creator, it shapes the way we live, the way we think, what we do, how we act, and how we deal with life's uncertainties. It's a lens from which we view this life. The language the preacher uses in the first seven verses of chapter 12 shows that while, yes, the preacher is talking about age, he has something bigger in mind. The illustrations he uses in these verses are pointing towards the coming day of the Lord. I think that in some ways he's discussing both our individual deaths and the coming day of the Lord, coming of Jesus making all things new, is pointing to the uncertainty of tomorrow. And the preacher recognizes the reality that we have no control over our future. We do not know what tomorrow holds. The phrase, remember your creator, is key for his preparation both in life and in death. It's the way the preacher's been able to discover the possibility of living within his uncertain life, the mysteries of life, without all the answers he so desperately wants. And while the preacher has no revelation of the New Testament like we do, he still has a hope of restoration and redemption from prophecies. His hope is grounded firmly in the fear of the Lord, in the remembering of your creator, rather than his trying to play the role of God. Like the preacher, we all have many questions about life. Perhaps, for some of these questions, they're weightier than others. But the reality is none of us have the answers to life. Some of us, sometimes we try to play the role of God, to make things bend to our will, make things good as we want. But it's only when we start to let the remembering of God as our creator shape the way we live interact with and understand this life, that we start to find peace about the uncertainties in its mysteries. Remembering our creator does not take away from the paradoxes of life. Rather, it reorients us towards them in a new, fresh way. 
instead of us being left to wonder on our own about these mysteries, about the mysteries of life and perhaps even worrying about them, we can turn to God knowing he is our creator, knowing that he cares for us. There is peace in surrendering our control as we remember God is our creator. Sometimes we walk through this life and there are seasons where these mysteries, these difficulties, challenges are immensely more difficult for us. Sometimes we really do want to relate to the despair of George Bailey on that bridge when everything we put into life doesn't seem to be returning. When good is repaid with evil or suffering doesn't end or suffering is unfair. There are some times in life that it seems as if all that can go wrong will go wrong. Or that that dark cloud is covering our lives just will not leave. When it feels as if joy is not possible in this life or no hope, in these verses, the preacher affirms that sometimes life is difficult. But these are the moments where we so desperately need to be reminded that we can enjoy life in these face of these uncertainties, these difficulties that are out of our control if we turn to God. When we start to open our white-knuckled grip on our lives and live them with open hands, we start to find peace. When we start, stop trying to know everything and trust Instead, that our Heavenly Father is in control and that it's okay to not know everything we find relief. And when we stop trying to play the role of God in our lives and remember that he is our creator and he is in control and that it's okay to not know everything, find joy. Knowing there is no greater freedom than not having control. We do not have to be afraid of the mysteries of life, even in our darkest hours. Because we know that the God of creation has our lives in his hands. That there's no surer hope in this moments when life is slipping through our hands that God is in control. We do not have to worry. But none of these things are easy. None of these things happen overnight. But as we pray that God works in our lives and teach us these things, we start to become more dependent upon him. As our prayers shift from asking God to do things for us that we think is best, that we think brings meaning to our life, to asking that God would align our hearts with his and his desire for our lives, we find a freedom knowing that when things go wrong, when things go awry, or life is difficult, it is okay. God, our creator, is in control. So in the moments of our lives when we're at our lowest, when we wonder why God is life the way it is, let us pray that God would take the reins, that we would trust in his good plan for our lives and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even in this world of difficulty and uncertainty and mystery, even in some of our darkest days, we can still turn to you to find hope and peace. That when the things of life seem to slip through our fingers and we don't have the answers, that you bring a peace to our lives when we relinquish our control. God, I pray as we walk through our lives that you help us to find a peace and a joy and a hope knowing that this life is still good and we can trust our future with you. God, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my...